Hello, my name is Janice B. Gordon. This is Scale Your Sales Podcast. Welcome to the Scale Your Sales Podcast, listed number nine of 42 best podcasts for every sales professional in 2021. I am Janice B. Gordon, the customer growth expert, recommended by LinkedIn as one of 15 innovative sales influencers to follow in 2021. For 10 years, my next guest ran Sales for Life, the largest social selling training platform for mid-market and enterprise companies like Microsoft, Reuters, Oracle, etc. Now the CEO of Pipeline Signals that enables sales and customer success teams to find intelligent relationship signals in their accounts to drive pipeline growth. Welcome to Scale Your Sales podcast, Jamie Sanks. Thank you for having me. Well, it's wonderful. I've been following you for years and years and years, and I know you've been a very busy boy. So I really wanted to get you on the Scale Yourself podcast to talk about what all the things that you've you've been doing. So the latest is that you're CEO of uh, Pipeline Signals. Now, this pioneers relationship signals and intelligence monitoring. It's the kind of thing I've heard before. So I'm really interested to hear from you. What's different about this? What does this do that no other platform or app does? So the platform's responsibility is to buy back your seller's time so that they're not squirreling through LinkedIn to look for compelling events or great opportunities, more at-bats, we would call it in North America. And primarily, we're focused on two sales plays. Play number one is called follow your fans, which is essentially reverse engineering your customers. People leave your customers and they go into prospects. They can go into customers, named account, prospects, and or the greenfield. As well, new executives are going to take jobs all the time. And when they do, in that first 100 days, they're going to bring in new people, process, and technology. So this came out of a sales training company. I was teaching hundreds of thousands of sellers around the world how to do this. But what was happening was Pareto's law was kicking in. Sellers weren't implementing what we were teaching. They were asking us to do it for them. So to answer your question directly, uh, against the status quo, your sellers armed with LinkedIn Sales Navigator just are incapable or not willing to monitor your hundreds or thousands of customers or your hundreds of thousands of prospects and correlate all the data. As from a tool against our competitors, one of the things that we really focus in on is the total addressable market. So we're not just watching contacts move from one end of your CRM to the other. We look at the entire buying committee, whether they're in your CRM or not, and we watch the migration of talent move around businesses, and then we route it into your CRM to grow your database faster than it's decaying. So I hope that answered your question. Yeah, I, I find it really interesting that you work with the total addressable market. So you're actually identifying opportunities that I may not see through my, you know, sales navigator and system. But there must be keywords, things that you're looking to to recognize that this person might be or this uh, company might be appropriate for my product or service. So how do you link those two? 
as part of onboarding, our customers will give us the rules to the road. So <laughs> geographies, verticals, uh, the ideal customer profile, titles, job functions, and so forth. What ends up happening is inside a customer, I'm drinking out of a Yeti water bottle. So in North America, we all love Yetis. So I'm drinking out of a Yeti water bottle and you sell to the chief human resources officers or the HR department at a company like Yeti. What will happen is the HR function, which changes jobs every 16 months on average, will move to all kinds of other businesses. Now your CRM, you already had Igloo Cooler, one of their biggest competitors in your CRM. But what's happened is that Yeti in your CRM, you had one or two contacts. We're all single threaded. But the rest of the HR function was not in your CRM. So those people will go to businesses known or unknown to your CRM. And then as well, in, in your other accounts, there's going to be all kinds of people that you had not thought about that make up the buying committee that again are not in your CRM. And we're completing that puzzle piece saying the people you knew moved from A to B, but the people you should be knowing, the rest of the buying committee, they've also done all of these things and they could be influencers or champions for you as well in those new businesses. I love this. It's um, really interesting. Have you identified that that this the movers are the key triggers of opportunity? Is that why you're tracking it? Correct. So as I pioneered social selling in 2012, the first sales play I was teaching, we called it the sphere of influence, which is how I grew my company sales for life. I would win a customer, draw a circle around a, a, their logo on a sheet of paper and reverse engineer where people went. And I came to recognize that people inherently buy into stories that are within one degree of separation of themselves. So what that really means is if I've worked at a company that used a solution and it was successful, I'm much more likely to use it again. But at the same time, ir irrespective of having a relationship, a new executive, when they go into a business in that first 100 days, they're thinking about new people, process, and technology. They're much more malleable to change, to bring in something that will shake the status quo, to put their, their stamp in the business. And so we want to focus on those change agents, agents at the moment when change is about to happen. Mm. You know, the, 17, the, the, the executive who's been in a company for 17 years, they've had 17 years to do something. But it's that person in the first 90 days you want to focus in on. Wow, that's interesting. So what's, who are your sweet spot of companies? I'm actually thinking, oh, I need this, <laughs> Jamie. You know, so what's your sweet spot of, of companies that this really works well for? You don't get the situation where, you know, as we do with a lot of sales stack, that you have the platform, but nobody's really using it to the full extent. So what, who do you appeal to? So we'll start at a couple angles. Angle number one is verticals. The two verticals that are really gravitating towards this first, number one, technology companies, because they have a scaled sales force who, uh, by and large, you do not want to spend the hundreds of thousands of dollars in man hours to have your expensive resources mining this intelligence. At the same time, the professional services industry, because we're, I, I, I say we, because I've come from ProServe, we're in the relationship space. We're in the business 
of human to human interaction. So you want to track our relationships. At the same time, the companies that are really successful, they typically have hundreds or thousands of customers or prospects. So they have a total addressable market that's unruly. It's impossible for them to manage on their own. Um, it's all business to business, complex sales. Um, those are typically the companies that are taking full advantage of this. Wow. Yeah. So I'd like to talk about your your book. You're the author of several books, um, but particularly Sphere um, Selling. And I, I understand that um, your background in social selling and, and um, being the CEO of um, Sales for Life what's what what is the approach that spear selling is platforming originally i wrote a book called social selling mastery which was the advent of social selling to the b2b space what i didn't realize is that i had over indexed and focused too much on being an inbound magnet so Social selling at the time, from the year 2012 to 2016, was teaching people to be influencers and magnets and, you know, control your brand and have people come inbound to you. But our customer base were global mid-market and global enterprise customers who would say, listen, we're an account-based model. You know, sellers are either broken up by vertical or geography or a set of named accounts, but they have a set of named accounts. And so how do you take your model and move it into an account based model? So we re engineered the IP to think through how you would use this if you were given 50 accounts or if you were given a geography or vertical. And it's a process that you take to select and prioritize your accounts plan a specific amount of those accounts, let's say five you then engage them and activate those accounts and then you reprioritize your total addressable market on a quarterly basis to look at where you focus your time so it's a, an account-based process right right so <clears throat> with social selling how has that now moved on i understand that we're talking about the account-based model through sphere selling but how has the uh, social selling mastery moved on since 2016. What's changed and evolved in that to actually make it most effective? A couple of things have evolved. So I, uh, when I would speak on stage pre-COVID, I spoke at 40 or 50 sales kickoffs or conferences a year. And I had a slide, maybe it was like slide three, which showed what I believed would be a timeline early adopters and innovators to kind of standard operating procedures to laggards. <laughs> and I remember on the graph, the year 24, uh, 2024, 2025, I thought this would be completely petering off. Um, and we'd be, you know, laggards then. And then COVID hit. And COVID forced us to become digital immediately. It took the analog seller and force them to be digital within weeks. Zoom, uh, using vineyard video to make videos, um, you know, just all kinds of digital uh, transformation happening in seconds, what seemed like seconds. So social selling, I believe, is now, it's not even almost a word anymore. It's not a, a breakaway methodology. It's not a, it's not a standalone thing. And I used to 
pontificate that one day it wouldn't be called so social selling. It would just be sales. It would be like 10, 15 years ago, it'd be teaching you email selling. It's just like, no, no, that's just selling. That's what social selling's become for at least what I believe, you know, for B2B organizations who really have embraced success from the year 2020 until now, you are now social selling. There, there's almost no possibility you could have made it this far without it. So social selling is now just sales, but it encompasses all things digital as part of the digital transformation of sellers to move them off of just using the phone or email as their only mediums of communication. Hope that answered. It, yeah. it, it just yeah. fast forwarded the entire program. I think this is interesting what you're saying that, you know, social selling has just become sales, but I meet an awful lot of organizations that, that haven't really embraced social selling. I don't know how they've succeeded over the last couple of years. Yeah, beggars belief, but they do. There are a lot of traditional salespeople that teeter around the edge of LinkedIn that still connect and sell. <laughs> I mean, we get them all the time uh, and globally, this is a platform where you can gain access to people, but the skill level of people that are trying to reach out is so poor. So what's happening? What's going wrong? Well, I think then um, at that transformation inflection point of COVID, so it's March or April of 2020, and their only mediums of communication were either then face-to-face. -face. So th there's a couple things that happened. You had millions and millions of field sellers, people who legitimately sold on planes, trains, and automobiles, now brought into an inside sales function for almost two years. And now they were not versed in prospecting. They were field sellers. Now they had to prospect. And the only mediums of communication they knew that they could use were the telephone, email, LinkedIn, WhatsApp, and a few others. And so they took bad practices and bad principles and they applied them from what they were work using in email. They just applied it to a different medium, LinkedIn, and they thought it would be effective. And it clearly isn't. Um, and so then the enablement function of these organizations didn't focus in on diversifying the communication that you have on LinkedIn is different than the communication that you have on email. Just because there's an inbox inside <laughs> LinkedIn doesn't mean you are replicating the inbox of your email. So it became an enablement challenge that uh, you know, clearly hasn't solved itself. And I don't think that it ever will. You know, call me a pessimist almost <laughs> the guy who pioneered the space spent 10 years training 600 global customers quarter million sellers what i've come to recognize is called pareto's law no matter how you know and gardner used to talk about this all the time there's a b and c players and they used to draw kind of a, a graph and they would show it 20 percent of your sellers are a you know 50 percent of your sellers are b and 30 percent are c and no matter what you do, it seems to never change. Um, so that's why after 10 years, I said to myself, maybe changing workflows and habits is really, really, really hard. So why not just 
work within a seller's workflow and give them things rather than get them to change their own behavior. So it's not that I'm giving up on the enablement side, but it's, um, it's very difficult to get sellers to change their ways. So do you think that the, the changing of behavior in the way that we try to do it is wrong in that we're not we're teaching rather than coaching and whether leaders sales leaders are not remunerating for the behaviors that they want rather than the behaviors they don't want it starts at the sales leaders themselves and actually they're more guilty than the sellers themselves sales leaders many of them grew up as non-digital or non-social sellers to begin with and are now using the playbook that they used in the late 90s, early 2000s, early 2010s, they're regurgitating that playbook back to their sales team, thinking that that's the playbook that's going to work and it, it's not. And so the sales leaders are, as, uh, are incapable of transferring that knowledge because they don't know how to do it themselves. So the sellers are just following the, the the playbook that the leaders are showing them and the leaders um, have no other resources to turn to yeah hence pipeline signals actually the do it for you <laughs> it, 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 it comes back to uh, years ago i had a mentor who used to talk about leaning your ladder on the right wall mm -hmm. and what that really meant was whether you're creating enterprise value in a business or you're focused on problems there's vitamin businesses and there's painkiller businesses mm -hmm. and the vitamin business is is sometimes is the enablement business the training of people is trying to is trying to make people healthier mm -hmm. but ironically they some of the, people just don't want to take their vitamins and so people have a pain they want their advil put it in their mouth and keep moving and so we said to ourselves, how do we just make it so that the seller, sellers don't want, ever want to change their workflow. They've got email, they have Salesforce open, they might have Slack or LinkedIn open. Doesn't mean they'll use LinkedIn. How do you give them the answers to the test in the places that are best for them? And, and then, so they just do what they've always done. You're just making it easier for them. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned about video. I'd like you to talk a bit more about video being part of the process and utilizing it to the greater extent. Tell me more about your views on, on that. Now looking post-COVID, I am floored of how the lack of usage of video in sales, mm -hmm. considering that it was really the only way to, hum I mean, there was Zoom. Zoom became, Zoom and Teams, Microsoft Teams, became how we sold over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. And you would think that if we were communicating with people we didn't know, or we were trying to communicate complex things, we would make people videos. And video is, was a huge staple in the Sales for Life training curriculum. And is a huge staple in pipeline signals communication to our customers. People are visual learners. And so we make it simple. We describing complex things, make a video. Um, it has caught on in certain industries and in certain subsections of sales, but it's not as pervasive as I thought. 
yet it overwhelmingly outperforms the written word. Those that make videos outperform their peers. Those that make videos open doors faster, they convert better, they, uh, they bring together buying committees easier because they're explaining complex things in videos. It is amazing to me that sellers don't use this on nearly all of their communication. It, and in fact, it's, I, I've proven this a million times on stage. I can make a video faster than I can write an email yeah. because I just press record. I talk really fast. I can't type nearly as fast as I talk. It's, and so you can't even use time management as a challenge. Mm. It, it is. It should be a staple in your sales arsenal. Is it about learning and behavior again? It's one of those. I remember when I first did my video. I mean, like you can go back on my YouTube channel. I don't know, 15 years ago. It was awful. It's still there. It was awful. But, you know, after a while doing kind of a bit more film production and everything, it becomes quite, quite natural. But it is quite a learning curve to actually appear to be natural on camera, uncomfortable on camera. Do you think that it's just taken people, because of the pandemic, we didn't expect we've been thrown into this and they haven't got the comfort level, so it's not something that um, salespeople will willingly do? Correct. I, I, I think most people would prefer going down, there's, you know, uh, one path looks a little bumpier, but clearly is a shorter uh, shortcut to the top of the hill, or the paved, groomed, beautiful, trail marked path. I'll just keep going on that one. I won't get risk, uh, any risk of being eaten by a bear going on the on the the more difficult yet clearly faster path. It's just sticking to what they know, rather than trying to go outside of their comfort zone. So, um, I we've we've kind of come to the end and I you know I'd love to get you on on again because like there's so on my list of questions and thoughts to kind of run by you very extensive having read your books as as well um but I I know that you know that you have a quite unusual way of looking at your time if you're on a desert island alone so share with the listeners your thoughts on that what would I do with my time? Yes. Well, uh, first, I would enjoy it because I actually, so I am a water person. Uh, I have a cottage on a lake, and so I would absolutely use that time to enjoy being on an actual <laughs> island. Um, but if you're asking the question, what would I do to try to escape? Would well, what I try would be the one thing you took with you? Oh, the yeah. one, the one thing that I would take with me, the one thing that I would take with me, great question. Uh, I would probably take a magnifying glass. Mm -hmm. I would take a magnifying glass because I would need to create fire. I would need to boil water. I would need to cook uh just like singe things i would <laughs> magnifying glass is exactly what i would take as it could be like the it, it'd be my swiss army knife to the creation of fire yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, um, I think it's probably one of the mo most useful things because you can even kind of carve out a knife and sharp implements with stones. Oh, the back of the, yeah. of the magnifying glass. And also, you know, you could attract the planes, really, you know, kind of reflect the light on it and and everything as 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 well. So yeah, I I did think that that was quite an uh, unusual but really interesting and well thought out. When I was um, a kid, I used to have magnifying glass. I used to start little. Every boy <laughs> in the eighties was a pyro, and I used to start little fires in the woods with magnifying glasses. You know, you you try to burn things and get them going. And very useful tool. <laughs> yes. Um, and not in the urban world. I think, you know, we need to take that out of your hands, really. Yes. Now. <laughs> that was brilliant. Um, so, Jamie, how can listeners get hold of you? I go to pipelinesignals.com, connect with me on LinkedIn, happy to connect uh, and help organizations get more at bats. That's really all we do is help people get more meetings. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and experience with us on Scale Yourselves podcast. Thank you very much, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Scale Yourselves podcast. If you like this discussion, feel free to listen to other episodes or watch the caption show on YouTube and subscribe to future episodes. I would really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review on iTunes. Thank you.